On today's episode of Yours Mentally, we talk about navigating the world of academia in psychology with Professor Bittu, who is the head of psychology department at Ashoka University. I would recommend every research aspirant in the field of psychology to listen to this episode at full length as there's a lot to learn from it. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. So professor, can you please tell our listeners in brief what your areas of research are and what have you already published? Okay, so I work on two or three different uh, questions. I'm interested in, broadly speaking, the evolution of neural systems and the ways in which neural systems, um, through evolution, sort of evolve in directions that end up solving computational puzzles, which are of ecological relevance. So I study, therefore, um, so I'll give you examples uh, because I might make it easier to substantiate. So I work on uh, communication as an example. So language and communication are complex kind of um, tasks that... Uh, that humans engage in, but uh, we have a limited window on human sort of vocalization. And our closest relatives, sort of chimps and monkeys, don't produce the kinds of vocalizations we do. They produce other kinds of vocalizations. And again, a very large, complex brains, very hard to get a handle on how vocalization and auditory communication evolves. Uh, so we look at a much simpler system, the insect system, where vocalization and communication are not learned behaviors, but it looks like innate behaviors. And we look at the evolution of complex song types from simple song types to see the ways in which neural circuits structure themselves in more and more complicated ways uh, and are driven by evolutionary pressures towards more complex or more simple song, depending on predator, uh, you know, uh, existence. These are sexual advertisement songs, so sexual selection also plays a role uh, or could play a role. So we test all of those possibilities. We've looked at the evolution of various novel signals in a lineage uh, given, uh, you know, from sort of ancestral traits. Uh, and so we've largely studied these um, behaviorally, ecologically. We're now studying the neural basis of these calling behaviors. And then we will look at the neural, at the ways in which these neural systems have evolved ac- comparatively across groups. Uh, and that's one puzzle that we look at uh, with respect to insect communication. Another set of puzzles that we looked at look at is with respect to, for example, numerical cognition and quantitative cognition. We do that largely in zebrafish, but there are other systems we could look at, including insect systems. So, um, so we look at the perception of quantities, of time, of 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 things that start to approach abstract numbers uh, and so on in uh, the zebrafish system. And then we also do a citizen science project looking on these in dogs. So we've not published any of the dog data yet, although hopefully that'll happen soon, but we've published some work on quantitative cognition in fish and a lot more actually on the cricket work, which is the oldest kind of research direction in the lab. So professor, do you usually generalize these results to humans or do they pertain to insects only? So one often has to tie these two humans in order to make the questions of general interest. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, publicly funded research is something that should always demand of us that we contextualize our research with respect to the kinds of things that people are interested in. But uh, but yes, um, and, and you know, those, those connections do exist. I mean, uh, we all get interested in cognition because of our own experiences with our own cognition. And um, with animal cognition in particular, you, you sometimes, uh, you know, you, you realize that animals are doing similar things, but in very different ways. And uh, sometimes animal cognition gives you a a handle on the ways in which cognition could happen, right, in ways that are divergent from the ways in which humans do uh, carry out those those forms of cognition. So, so apart from the communication barrier, what other challenges do you face in terms of studying animal cognition and more? So, with animal cognition, uh, one faces the general challenge <laughs> that one can't, like with a human, say, "What are you thinking?" 
right? So the big challenge with animal cognition is figuring out what animals are thinking without drawing inferences that aren't strictly, you know, derivable from the data. And typically with most animals, the only data you're getting are uh, from animal movement, right? I mean, even when you talk to somebody, you're only getting data based on the motor action that they produce, except that with humans, you know, when they're producing a complex set of sounds, we, we train ourselves to interpret and learn each other's sounds. In the case of most animals, with the exception of now African gray parrots, you can't actually ask them, what are you thinking? And of course, the answer, of course, will, whether it's humans or non-humans, will be limited to the kinds of linguistic frame, you know, the kinds of language that one has used already to, to, to train each other in. So yeah, uh, we're largely inferring complex cognition from the ways in which animals move. Uh, and so that, I think, is the biggest challenge with animal cognition, to, you know, uh, derive meaningful data from often very simplistic outcome parameters. Yeah, and to make sure that one's not either oversimplifying or deriving complexity that, that, that the data don't strictly imply. Is there a reason for why you specifically chose zebrafish? So I, you know, with crickets, I, I mean, these are all systems where as you get to know the systems more intimately, behaviorally, neurally, and so on, you really realize that um, various experiences of, you know, so any form of caging these animals or even opening them up to look at their brains, it, it, it you know, it, the, I think the more one works with them, the more conscious one is of how, uh, how much of an imposition that is in some sense. So in looking, so zebrafish are useful for multiple reasons. One is that uh, one can non-invasively look at the zebrafish brain while the zebrafish is performing behavior. That involves some degree of restraining the fish, but the fish in some sense partially feels free to move because their tails, which do a lot of their movement, are free. It's only the head that's head fixed. And so, and now there are, there's, there's even improvement in technology that allows zebrafish to freely move. And in fact, it's a, they, they implement these feedback loops where as the zebrafish moves, the camera system moves with them. And so actually you can have freely moving zebrafish, which the camera stabilizes for instances, for, for instance, while data is, 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 um, is, uh, is recovered. And the, the form of the data are basically that, that each, that these animals are, are transparent and you can encode a calcium indicator in each of their neurons. So when the neurons activate, it sends out a light signal. So you can watch the whole brain at work without invasively opening up the animal, sticking an electrode near a nerve, and so on. So it is a useful approach uh, and a useful system, not just for non-invasive monitoring, but for large-scale gathering about the response of the whole brain of a large, complex brain to data. And so it's a good counterpoint to the insect system, which is a classical electrophysiology, one neuron at a time kind of approach. And I also wanted to pick zebrafish because... I only want to work on model systems which are ecologically local or where I can sort of actually look at the ecology of the animal in understanding the, um, the ways in which neural systems have evolved. And of course, the zebrafish, which is one of the worldwide sort of systems used um, for, for research, is found, uh, is native to India. It's exported all over the world. So uh, if we ever want to look at uh, ecological factors influencing certain kinds of behaviors, we have that option. So these are the various reasons for which you think zebrafish. It's a powerful system, but it's also locally available, and it enables non-invasive uh, monitoring of neural activity. What has been your most interesting observation when it comes to zebrafish? Oh, uh, I think our zebrafish research is enough in its infancy that I wouldn't say that we have a, uh, you know, fascinating kind of insight. Our biggest insight, I mean, unfortunately, is just that a lot of what is described in the literature when you're looking at live wild-caught zebrafish is just incredibly variable between zebrafish. So we find um, a lot of variety in, the, in zebrafish responses, and we find that 
characterizing populations are nearly it's it's a nearly meaningless approach because there's so much um, inter-individual variation similar to humans in some sense and there are various other aspects of zebrafish behavior that's just that's very human-like or very evocative of human behavior um, for example they really really they hate being isolated they the, the you know if you isolate them for just uh, you know an hour you immediately start to see them move around a lot less and cling to a side of the tank and so the the way they react to isolation and they're incredibly social animals they will perform more for social reward than food reward so many of these things are quite evocative of human behaviors and there's some aspects of these behaviors that i think are useful where zebrafish might uh, you know are a useful model system for humans how would you juggle being a researcher as well as a professor so i mean actually juggling research and teaching and so on is not difficult i think juggling all of those with with activism and parenting has you know has been challenging uh, you know i think uh, the lockdown also sort of brought about this sort of change where i switched from so so during the lockdown really was the only time that i was doing full time research because before that there was always a lot of activist work alongside and then soon around the time lockdown ended i became a parent so of course that also took over a lot of space but i think that interim period was really the only time that i was full time doing full time research and teaching and it was a useful kind of realignment at least at the time i think that that realignment has stood me in good stead even through parenting so i think uh, uh yeah research and teaching are very easy to balance they feed into each other ideally and one doesn't always have that with the so with the introductory courses which ones you know very used to teaching i mean that's something i could do in my sleep at this stage but with the advanced courses you're you there are ways that you can tailor the course so that you're really doing the kind of reading you would like to be doing for your research for teaching those courses and i think that's uh, that's the fun in teaching advanced courses yeah they 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 take a lot more of your time but that is time that's valuable to your research approach as well so professor other than advanced neuroscience which courses do you take so i teach advanced neuroscience and evolutionary cognition those are my two advanced courses i teach a foundation course mind and behavior and i teach introduction to neuroscience and i've taught various critical thinking courses and so on in the past yeah Audience. So our next question is uh, whether you find the world of academia and research to be a slow field in the sense that when you're working with insects and animals uh, you have to wait a lot for their response time and then the results and only then be able to uh, take the research ahead so would you say that it's slow I would describe it as slow I mean for any one person working on one part of a puzzle it's always slow but sometimes when you shift paradigms or you shift you know lenses uh, or even how you view your data suddenly things start to move very quickly so uh, so it's I think like evolution a lot of gradual change but sometimes you have what's called punctuated equilibrium which is a sudden punctuation where things suddenly shift Did you ever reach a point in your research when you had no idea what to do next I've been fortunate so I think I really only experienced that during my PhD when I was doing a pure neuroscience PhD I felt stuck in a lab and wanted to do more field work but ever since I've been doing field work alongside lab work and so on I've not experienced that I mean with the with the cricket system that we work on you know especially there's just so many questions to be asked and so few people working on these animals that you know there's there's no there's no point at which one can even so sort of think what next exists there's so many what nexts mm. and but with you know with the zebrafish work yeah it's a, the combination of the ways in which multiple people are working on behavior and the ways in which the discourse moves and shifts sometimes one you know the the the, the particularity of what approach one takes is important so it's important to constantly reassess and reevaluate you know whether one wants to change sort of the kinds of questions one is asking and yeah change and of course students always push one to think about new directions in one's research 
research as well. So, Professor, just out of curiosity, how many hours in a day do you spend on research specifically? Well, I think that answer was very different pre-parenting and, and post. I think that, you know, often with... So, I, so now, on my teaching days, uh, earlier, you know, teaching felt like almost a non-existent time commitment because it was just three hours twice a week and, you know, then you'd have a large chunk of the rest of the day, right? So, you know, I, 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 I would spend... So, whether I was balancing activism in uh, research and teaching or uh, full-time teaching, I think, I, I mean, I was very much a workaholic. So, I, I, you know, I would have all day. And so, I would, you know, typically think of a day as having really, you know, 14 to 15 hours. And I would very rarely take even food breaks or anything else. So, so everything would just... So, I, I, so teaching was really not... It was a tiny dip in that kind of... But with parenting you feel like you really only have eight hours at most a day and sometimes really only six. And then a teaching, especially with an advanced course where you're doing a lot of class prep it, and, and, and grading and interacting with students, my teaching days are really pretty much fully wiped out. And so now I'm really only do, able to do research and then weekends are fully spoken for because we don't have childcare or crèche over, over the weekends. So there's three days remaining and those three days are all research days. Uh, but large chunks of them go into advising students on how to do research. So the amount of time one can actually really sit and read and write boils down to more like sort of a day or two a week, which is far too little. Um, and so, of course, that's post-parenting. And pre-parenting, it, it just felt like all of the time could be flexibly deployed towards research, activism, teaching. Yeah. So, Professor, we had also, like I had participated in one of your dog mission experiments. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, uh, the Dognition experiment is an attempt at citizen science, that is to see whether one can gather data from a large number of people, uh, you know, who are working not necessarily in a lab, not necessarily even after having gotten the kind of school degree that one, one for some reason, seems to impose upon people before one, can, one says they can do scientific experiments. The idea is just anybody who's interested in behavioral experiments, who has access to a dog, and which um, having access to a dog is true for almost all Indians because there's some dog on some street whom you can, you know, befriend. And so the idea was to think, uh, because we have questions about behavior in dogs, the, the question was whether we can sort of, uh, uh, especially during the lockdown when people were at home and couldn't and wanted to do experiments but couldn't uh, come to the lab, whether we could gather these as distributed data where everybody follows a protocol. So it required a degree of organization with people sort of standardizing the protocol, getting everybody on a call, explaining, people recording their um, dogs while they experiment, experimented, sending back those data, and then us checking whether those, you know, conformed to the, the, the scientific requirements um, uh, for publishing. But, uh, but it, was, it was a fun project to try and get that kind of, you know, distributed data, and, and it's something that we are actually going to publish soon. So. so what exactly did we infer from that project? So from that project, so we were specifically looking at whether dogs could learn the association between the number of lines on um, a card indicating how much food they would get and the quantity of food that they were offered. So one line would imply one piece of food and two lines would imply two. And it looks like four or so of the 12 dogs that we were able to get consistent data from did this task very, very well. Um, for more had sort of middling data or continued to want to use one side of the, just sort of stick to one side and not kind of uh, go to two different sides. And another third just, uh, you know, consistently refused to kind of really engage with the task. So this is similar to what we find with zebrafish, which is that a fraction of animals can do the task, not all of them. 
and the ones that do the task are able to, you know, um, but, but in the case of the of fish, the ones who could do the task were not performing particularly consistently well. In the case of the dogs, the ones that can do the task are performing sort of at a 90% level of, you know, compared to chance levels of 50%. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that we can find all these results in animals because yeah. I think the whole factor of like different biases and things yeah. like that gets eliminated. In some ways, because you're, you're really strictly only inferring whether the animal has learned the association by when you spatially randomize the task, by whether they move towards the, the task with the higher reward. Yeah. What advice would you give to a psychology student who also wants to get into the field and this line of research? So I would just say that um, it's important. So research is is where you're breaking away from textbooks, right? It's where you are asking questions that don't have answers or and ideally you're asking questions that don't have answers. I mean, lots of people ask derivative questions for which there's an answer and they're just trying to, um, you know, redo it or provide a replication point. And those are valuable, uh, you know, uh, exercises as well. And and it's slightly easier to do in the sense that when you're asking a question that hasn't been asked before, a question for which there's sparse data, then you're very much on your own. And so research is emotionally, I think, difficult more than it is, uh, you know, logistically difficult. Uh, it's once you put something together logistically, you may find that that approach doesn't work. While you're doing the research, you may find that another approach would have worked better. And that can feel like a setback. So I think the challenge really is to, to keep on spirits up. And in some sense, Therefore, research selects for people who don't mind getting negative results or, or realizing that they've tried something and it hasn't worked. So the hard thing with research and the, the only advice I give to people is to not be results driven in the sense of you try something and if your results, you know, you're, you're really asking a question to which you don't have an answer ahead of time. That's why you're asking it. And so one should be really, really prepared to become very comfortable with failure, with the fact that failure will keep happening. Uh, not to become comfortable with failure in the sense of saying, well, I failed and now I'm comfortable and I'm not going to do anything else, right? The idea is to be comfortable with failure as part of the process and is instructive about what does and does not work. And then that gives you in input with which to decide what to do next and so on and so forth. And failure is useful information. It tells you that some protocol hasn't worked, right? It's useful information that tells you what could work. So I, that's, that's my main advice, I think, is to really sort of uh, be comfortable with using failures and as, as an informational kind of tool uh, and to not sort of uh, be personally affected or think that there's something about one's, oneself that's personally kind of responsible for, uh, for failure. Yeah. Okay. If one's doing everything perfectly correctly, there's a good chance that one will fail uh, and one should be okay with that.